Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. Well, good morning again. Uh, For those of you trickling in late, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here. Hey, we got two more weeks in our Campfire Stories series. Have you guys enjoyed this kind of awkward, weird series? Yeah, anybody? Yeah, a couple of you? Good. Um, I've enjoyed it mostly because these stories that we're sharing are all kind of tough ones, um, and apparently I'm a glutton for punishment, um, and so, uh, so when we decided to jump into these, I didn't realize it was going to be as difficult is, as this actually is. So for those of you who are just jumping in with us now, um, we have been talking through the last three weeks kind of stories that you would assume fit better around a campfire than they do in Scripture. But they're all in Scripture. And so uh, what we recognize then is from 2 Timothy is that all of these stories, all of Scripture is God-breathed. And, and the, the remainder of that verse talks about how they are useful for teaching, rebuking, correct. I mean, all of these stories, that means all of Scripture that is God-breathed, and we believe that the entire Word of God is indeed God-breathed, that all of these things then should be useful. But man, there's some weird ones in here. Legitimately, I mean, our first week we talked about two she-bears, and it says she-bears, two she-bears running out of the woods and mauling 42 young adults. Like, okay, and what can we pull from that? And we did, and it was, you can go check on us on, on our podcast. It's on iTunes. Go check that one out. Probably one of my favorites that we preached in a while, or that I've preached in a while. Um, but, but campfires specifically, they tend to have just this, this awe surrounding them, right? Where, where you can sit around a campfire and just kind of stare into the flames. Oftentimes, people uh, have, are, are a little bit more open around the campfire. They're talking, all that stuff, and um, I was trying to figure out why uh, earlier this week. I was thinking, what is it about a campfire that really just kind of forces you into that realm? And the best that I could come up with is that you're outside and your device isn't in your hand, right? Like, that's really the best that I could come up with. It's like, you know what? You tend to really just kind of open up when you turn your phone off every once in a while and actually look up and have conversations with people in the beauty and the grandeur of God's nature. But um, I was thinking about another campfire story. Now, Jeff told the one last week where he tried to stay in a squatting position. I'm not even going to try to do it, but it stayed in a squatting position for like hours and um, wasn't able to do it. Um, and, uh, and I had talked about before a ghost story on a lake when I was a Cub Scout, but I thought about another one uh, when I was preparing this, and, and uh, I was just about to propose to Sarah. Okay? And uh, me and my best friend, we both had girlfriends almost for the same exact amount of time. We went to San Francisco. We bought engagement rings for them at the same time, and we decided that we were also going to propose around the same time to our girlfriends. So we decided what we would do, though, is before... Before we get the old ball and chain, we need to go do man stuff, right? And so we decided that we were going to, Sarah, I'm sorry for calling you ball and chain. I apologize in front of everybody. I eat those words. Um, but we had to go do man stuff, right? And so we decided that uh, we were going to go backpacking into uh, deep into Yosemite's backcountry. Um, and I did that. And I think like two weeks later, we ended up proposing um, but so one thing you need to know about my best friend Caleb is that uh, his dad was a Yosemite Park Ranger for 25 summers up in Tuolumne Meadows. He was actually a mounted ranger, so he's on horseback. Um, he told me all these awesome stories about like when back in the, the late 70s that he got in fights with hippies and that sort of thing. And he's like, this is crazy. He told me some crazy stories. But we also, the entire time in, uh, of our senior year, we got an opportunity to take his science class. And his science class was called Sierra Nevada. And so in Sierra Nevada, all we studied the entire time was the Sierra Nevada mountain range. Everything, flora, fauna, dirt, uh, climate. Uh, I mean, Animals, all, that would be fauna. Um, but all of those, all of those things, at least some of you picked up on that, so I'm not the only one who made that mistake. Um, and so, 
we learned about all this stuff, and Caleb was super familiar with the backcountry, so I'm like, yeah, let's go, man. And so we put on our packs, and anybody who knows anything about backpacking, we were carrying 85 pounds on our back, which is really dumb. Um, and, uh, and so we go hiking back to our, or we camped for a night in Tuolumne Meadows, um, and then we hiked about eight miles back into the backcountry. And uh, we, we landed at our spot, and we had a, just an absolute incredible time, absolute incredible time. And one day, we, so what we did is we, we made our kind of our, our location, our, I, I'm blanking on the name, um, but we made, we made camp, and then each day we would go on day hikes, right, out to a different spot and then come back, and camp was already set up, so we didn't have to pack up and unload everything every time that we wanted to move. And so uh, one day we went up to a place called Roosevelt Lake. It's, a, it's an alpine lake up in the backcountry Yosemite, and then the other day uh, we we hiked up what is called Mount Kness. Mount Kness is the third highest peak uh, on, in the Sierra Nevada range. And so, or in Yosemite, one of the two, I don't know, fact checkers out there, I'm sure you'll email me later on this week. But we hiked up to the top of Kness, right? And we start hiking back and we got lost, legitimately. I mean, we had a GPS system, but this is like GPS systems, like 14 years ago or something like that. So not nearly as reliable as they are now or anything. So. We're like, look, we're like, we're navigating by like beeps, right? And, and it's like, oh, you're getting colder. And we're like, what? Okay, and so we kept going towards our campsite. Oh, and then we, as we are lost, though, we see mountain lion tracks in the mud, right? And man, you want to get freaked out for a second? Look at mountain lion tracks in the mud as you're lost in the backcountry and like your lunch, like that's like you're their snack if they want to make you their snack. And so anyway, we eventually get back and uh, we make dinner and you know, the sun is setting and it's getting dark and the mosquitoes are coming out. And man, of course, Caleb and I are chatting and then he's like, man, hey, remember? Remember we saw those mountain lion tracks? I was like, yeah, I was trying to forget that we saw those mountain lion tracks, bro. Um, and he's like, dude, do you remember that? Uh, that, that lesson that we learned in our Sierra Nevada science class. And I was like, what? Uh, which one are you talking about? He's like, about mountain lions. I was like, oh, yeah, I do. And then I got freaked out. The reason I got freaked out as we're sitting around a campfire is mountain lions are actually incredible predators. God designed them incredibly well. Mountain lions' main prey is deer, for those of you who don't know. Now, uh, a mountain lion, the space between a mountain lion's canines, right, is exactly one inch, and that one inch uh, would fit perfectly around a deer's spine. And so what they do are in between two deer vertebrae. And so what they do is they stay in the tree, they pounce on the back of a deer, they go into the spine and they paralyze the deer. That's how they kill animals oftentimes. And then Mr. Medifin, Caleb's dad, went one step further in class. He said, and guess what? All of you also have a one inch vertebrae in your back. <laughs> I was like, cool, man. That's awesome. So Caleb reminds me about all this. As we're sitting around the campfire in the dark, eight miles away from anything, we saw tracks earlier. I'm petrified. And then he's like, hey, man, you ready to turn in? I'm like, no, I'm not ready to turn in. There's, like between me and safety is a vinyl tent that wasn't even keeping mosquitoes out. How do you think it's going to keep a mountain lion out? But things come out around campfires that sometimes are scary, sometimes they're funny, whatever it is, we just tend to bear our souls around campfires with one another. And this story specifically is, it is a campfire story. And as I was going through this, man, I had so many options to pull from. You could just flip open the book of Judges and you'll find a campfire story, right? You can just like do that and you'll find something ridiculous. There's the fat king who gets stabbed and the sword gets lost inside of him somewhere, right? It's a crazy story if you've never heard that one. Um, but there's a whole bunch, the witch of Endor, there's a whole bunch of them. So finally, I was like going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then someone suggested to me that, man, we should flip to Ezekiel 37. And so that's where we're going to be today. Ezekiel 37 is the valley of the dry bones is what we're going to be talking about today. Now, this story is a little bit different than the other ones that we've talked about because this story, many people believe, is simply a vision. Okay? These other stories that we saw, they physically happened right? Two bears did come out of the woods and maul young adults, okay? A hand did float and write on the wall. Uh, Balaam's donkey did talk, okay? So those are real stories. This, while physically may not be real, 
Ezekiel is still used in such a way. Uh, Ezekiel is still used in a very real way, regardless of the fact that it is a vision. He still has things that he has to act on. And so again, that's in Ezekiel 37. So let me, uh, let me give you some context as you're continuing to flip there. And we're gonna be, just so you know, don't put it on the screen yet. We're gonna be one through 14, but we're really gonna have an emphasis on one through 10 today, okay? So a little bit of context. So the Jewish people experienced two major exiles, okay? They experienced the Assyrian exile and the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile was the one that Ezekiel, who's a prophet in the Old Testament, is the one, uh, he, he was in the, the Babylonian exile. And that one came in two waves. The first was in 597 BC. The second was in 587 BC. That's not backwards. They used to count down before we counted up, right? 597 first, 587 second. So to understand Ezekiel, it helps to see where he fits in the context of these exiles. Also, keep in mind that after Solomon's reign, Israel splits up into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom composed of 10 tribes known as, known as Israel, and the southern kingdom was composed of two tribes and it was known as Judah, okay? God then called Ezekiel to be a prophet during that second wave exile, and and. Ezekiel, for the majority of the book, or the, the first half of the book of Ezekiel, is prophesying doom and gloom for the city of Jerusalem. But he's also preaching hope for the Israelites in the second half. So Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah. For those of you who are old school literary uh, or, or prophetic people who understand prophets and that sort of thing, contemporary of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was living and prophesying uh, in Jerusalem while Ezekiel was li living and prophesying in Babylonia. Okay, so they were living and prophesying at the same time. I know oftentimes we think of like, we're linear in our order of thinking, right? Which makes sense. Okay, we're going to say this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Well, the crazy thing is, is that two people can actually exist on earth and do God's will at the same time. Shocking, right? So that's actually what we have going on here. Ezekiel and Jeremiah are contemporaries of one another. So Ezekiel, Ezekiel continues this prophetic ministry for, for approximately 30 years until well after the fall of Jerusalem. That was in 587 BC, like I talked about. So in the early chapters of Ezekiel, okay? He proclaims judgment, a sword against Israel in chapter five, judgment on idolatrous Israel in chapter six, impending disaster in chapter seven. Then there's a series of judgments on surrounding nations to Israel, or to, uh, uh, yeah, to Israel. Then the exiles learn that the city of Jerusalem has fallen. Okay, they've learned that Jerusalem has fallen in chapter 33. And that news marks a turning point, marks a turning point in the book of Ezekiel because the emphasis until this point had been on judgment and everything dumb that the Israelites were doing. And until then, now hope and God's mercy is kind of the turning point there in chapter 33. So Israel really suffered under a bunch of false prophets. That's 34, and he talks about that. God is going to be Israel's true Shepherd, and that talks about that at the end of chapter 34. And then Yahweh pronounces judgment on the nation of Edom, that's 35, but blesses Israel and promises Israel's renewal in chapter 36. Okay, so that's a brief rundown of the first 36 chapters. I'm sure you're all with me still, and you're like, okay, this makes sense where we are. You can forget all of that, focus on 37. Okay, so 37 is a natural lead-in, or this is a natural lead-in to 37 because it really does uh, portray Israel's resurrection as a people group, okay? And so when we read this, and like I said, we're going to read in just a second. When we read this, we need to understand that my understanding of this, and you're welcome to your own interpretation, but my understanding of this is this is a vision that he has, okay? So let's jump into it. Ezekiel 37, 1 to 14. This is Ezekiel talking. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me to the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. Okay, real quick there. Valley right there. Anytime you talk about uh, the ocean or valleys or anything like that, anytime you see that in scripture, that's usually a sign of, of something tumultuous that has happened. Okay, so a valley would have been significant 
in this. So it was a, uh, set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. So we see, when we think about very dry, uh, Lion King, any Lion King fans out there, Disney fans? Okay, like four of you are willing to admit it. Okay, come on guys. Disney literally owns everything. You're all Disney fans, whether you know it or not. Um, but uh, if you think about Lion King, they go to the elephant boneyard. Don't go to the elephant boneyard. That's what I think of. I mean, dry, dusty, old bones is what he is looking at here. Verse three, he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Verse four, then he said to me, prophecy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. So breath here, breath, spirit, air, all of those things are kind of interchangeable words in the Old Testament. This would be kind of the same word that's being used as God breathed life into Adam, right? Back in the, back in the book of Genesis. So it's kind of the same same context there. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am Lord. Verse seven. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army. Okay, that's 10. We're going to get to 11 and following in just a second. But can you, I mean, as far as camps, campfire stories go, right? If, if someone is sitting around a campfire and they're like, all right, check this out. This is what happened. Okay. God took me to this valley and there's bones everywhere, right? There's bones all over the place. They're dry, they're brittle, they're breaking. They're, some are white, some are gray. It's gross. Some have like army helmets on them because this is probably a massive battle that took place. So I'm sitting around, God's like, hey, hey, tell these bones to stand up. Tell these bones that, 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 that I'm gonna breathe life into them. And all I did was open my mouth and these bones started coming together. I mean, it was crazy. I had like little toe bones scooting around on the ground, trying to find foot bones, right? And the foot bones got attached. I'm not gonna sing it. I know some of you are like, knee bones connected to the that, that. Nope, not gonna happen. Um, but can you, and then all of a sudden, and then they're like, but the crazy thing was, wasn't just the bones that were coming together. All of a sudden the bones were coming together and then tendons started appearing out of nowhere. Then like muscles started forming on these bones. And after that skin, and all of a sudden I was standing there and there was this massive, just zombie army standing in front of me, right? And then someone jumps out from the woods and yells boo and everybody screams, right? Like that's how this would work. That's how this would work. But as we see it there, there was a vast army. They came to life because of God's breath. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We're cut off. Therefore prophecy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I'm gonna open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. So 11 through 14 has an end times bent to it. And so I wanna be upfront with that, but that's not what we're focusing on today. 11 through 14 has an end times, the theological word for that would be eschatological bent to it. So that's the study of end times, right? The, uh, the study of end of things, essentially. Um, and so that really is, and that's one of the reasons that I believe that this is a vision and didn't physically happen. But that's one of the reasons I believe that is because of the fact that it's talking about future Israel, 
It's talking about, it has the same type of language that you would see in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, okay? And so, but again, we're not gonna be focusing on that today. But in 37, we see that Ezekiel had, or God had taken Ezekiel into a strange place, brought him to the valley. It's covered with bones. There's tremendous battle that had taken place sometime um, because there's nothing but bones scattered in this entire, entire valley. And he looks at the bones. Ezekiel looks at the bones. And I can just imagine he looks to the left and, and there's just a skull sitting there with a, with a helmet. And he looks to the right and there's some shields, but next to shields, there's some bones and arms and that sort of thing. I mean, this valley would have been completely and totally dead. Completely and totally dead. He notices though that these bones had been washed by the rains. They had been bleached by the sun and they are baked and they're dry and they're scattered all over the valley. If we're gonna sense kind of the, the futility of this, if we wanna get metaphorical on it, which every good pastor is going to do with this story, I'll just settle for a pastor being <laughs> doing this in this story. What we need to understand is that there is a literal valley that you live in. There's a literal valley that each and every one of us live in, the great San Joaquin Valley. And that valley is filled with dry bones. The valley that Ezekiel is looking at is filled with dry bones. There is a world around us that needs to hear the gospel, needs to hear God's truth spoken over them so they can come back to life. The vision Ezekiel saw was, was dry and scattered bones and it depicted desolation and destitution. It was completely and totally devastated. It was the nation of Israel, metaphorically speaking. And until we have a similar vision of the world in which we live, we will not be stirred to action. We need to be able to see what Ezekiel saw. We need to have our sight lines elevated to be able to look at our valley and recognize there's a whole lot of dry bones sitting out there. But a couple of things we need to pull from this. First thing is the situation defied human reasoning. The situation defied human reasoning. And this is, this is a reminder that the life of the prophet, by the way, wasn't always a fun one, right? Wasn't, wasn't often fun. It probably wouldn't be sought after because oftentimes these guys are outcasts in society. Nobody really accepts them. We can go back to Elisha being called baldhead, right? I mean, they, they just weren't liked overall by people because, because they were telling them what they were doing was wrong. You ever walk up to somebody and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. It's not exactly a way to make friends. Like it's pretty hard to make friends <laughs> that way. And that's literally what the prophets oftentimes were doing. Their people oftentimes wouldn't Listen to them. God even promises that to Ezekiel early on in chapter two. He says this in verses three and four. He said, son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites. Okay, cool. To a rebellious nation. What? That has rebelled against me. Like if, I'm, if I'm Ezekiel, I'm like, do I have an option here? Like you're sending me, you're telling me from the get-go that this is a rebellious nation. People who really want nothing to, okay, cool. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. Cool, so they're not just grumpy, they're also gonna be revolting against me. Awesome, thanks God, appreciate that. The people to whom I'm sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And that last piece right there, this is what the sovereign Lord says. That's why prophets go. That's why prophets move because it's not about them. It's not about their comfort. It's about their obedience to a massive God. And so that's why he ends up going. This would have been a miserable job for him. And this vision that he was just given by the Lord wasn't gonna make things any easier for him. If anything, it was gonna make things hard. He just saw a massive group of dead bodies that were dry and brittle. And God was gonna use that for him to tell the nation of Israel that this was a metaphor for them and their hearts. That's not easy. That would be like me coming in this morning, right? And saying, guys, look, I had a vision. God took me to the side of the road. 
and there I saw a dead skunk. And God said to me, speak over this skunk. And I spoke over this, as soon as I opened my mouth, the skunk came alive. And that is a metaphor for all of you in your hearts, right? That's not a good way to come across. That would have been terrible for him. Also, that wasn't actually a metaphor for you guys, okay? I wouldn't have said skunks. It would have been a different animal. Anyway, just kidding, just kidding most of the time. So, (laughs) but regardless, these would have been dead, dry bones that we're looking at here. And God's saying, hey, you need to tell this nation, you need to tell these people that this is who they are. This is what they have done. Their spirits, their hearts, they are dead spiritually. They need to return to me in some way. These bones were representative of a life that is alienated from God. These bones represent a person who has chosen to live their life apart from him. They are what the word of God calls, quote, spiritually dead. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.1, he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then Romans reiterates, and it's reiterated in a number of different places. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A person whose life is controlled by the things of this world is dead on the inside. A person whose life is controlled by the things of this world is dead on the inside. The enemy does not give a person life. Satan gives people death. A very real Satan gives people death. Death to purity, death to happiness, death to hope, death to spirituality. Death to anything good. That's what he offers. Those bones had been in the valley for a long time. No meat, no marrow, no moisture on those bones. I mean, in 37.2, it says, there was very many in the open valley and they were very dry. In verse 11, it says, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Up to this point, these bones had no hope, no life whatsoever. A person without Christ, a person who lives their life separated from God's help is in a hopeless state. They're in a hopeless state. They may look like they have everything going for them, but they fail to realize that without Christ, they're not living, they're only existing. Man, we beat that drum in Ecclesiastes when we walked through it earlier this year. Is that we're merely existing apart from God. We're merely going through the motions of life apart from God. Ecclesiastes said that we were toiling over and over and over again. Word of the year, toiling. But that's the same thing that we're talking about here. They're merely existing and things that merely exist have no purpose. They have no goals. They have no dreams. And bones cannot execute and carry out plans. That's not how it works. Bones don't have a future. They merely have a past. There's no zeal, there's no fire, there's no emotion, there's no heart, no driving force in an entire pile of bones. Nothing, dead. Ezekiel could have had a heart attack and been at the point of death, but the bones would have, couldn't have cared less. They probably wouldn't have been aware of the situation. They weren't aware of any situation. Danger could have been approaching these bones and they would have just lied there, unaware and unconcerned. More than likely, Ezekiel saw some sort of activity in that valley, maybe a little bit of a form of life in creation, grass, flowers, maybe a river, but there was no activity among the bones. There was a smell of some form of life but there was probably an overwhelming stench of death. This scene must have been disheartening for Ezekiel. As he looked over these bones, he could think back to a time when those bones did represent ambition, did represent some sort of goal. Those bones represented awareness. Those bones represented a time of activity. 
These bones at one point represented life, represented hope. At one time, these bones represented a, a bright future. At one time, these bones were vibrant, alive, doing something good. And now look at them, lifeless. But regardless of the rough metaphor that, that God had shown him, Ezekiel continued to press on. Ezekiel proceeded with a definite expectancy. Ezekiel proceeded with a definite expectancy. And God had taken Ezekiel to a place of impossibility, right? This place shouldn't have existed. And God allowed Ezekiel to observe that situation. We saw this open valley of nothing but dead and scattered bones. I wonder, like, if he was thinking to me, like, what am I doing here? Why am I here? There's not even a ray of hope here. In 37, 1 and 2, Ezekiel hadn't said a word. He's only an observer. All he knows is that God has placed him where he was. And as Ezekiel stood there looking at these bones, about that time, God asks him a question in verse 3. You want to highlight anything in your Bible from this story? Highlight verse 3. Because verse 3 says, God asks him, Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Can you imagine what went through Ezekiel's mind as God asked him this question? Can these bones live? Like we always assume that these prophets are just like, man, these hyper-spiritual, super incredible people. They were merely God's mouthpiece. They were normal human beings being obedient to what God asked them to do. And so when I hear things like this, of God asking a human being, can these bones live? The obvious answer is no, they're bones. It's a good thing I'm not a prophet because that's probably how I would have answered. <laughs> Ezekiel had a much, much, much better response. Ezekiel's response was, sovereign Lord, you alone know. God, you know. Don't ask me that. You know if they can. We need to understand that God is in control of every single situation, no matter how difficult it may seem. When God does the asking, that means he is about to do something. And he tells Ezekiel exactly what to do. He tells Ezekiel exactly what to say. He is with Ezekiel every single step of the way in this story. Ezekiel merely has to be willing to be able to do it. And, and real quick, as, this was not Ezekiel's miracle. Okay, we've talked about that in numerous instances and, and across all of the prophets. The prophets, these are not their miracles. They are willingly obedient to God and his power is manifested through them, through their obedience, through the things that they are willing to do. And so Ezekiel had no power coming from him except the power of God. It was not him. He was not some magician or anything like that. Okay, this is God's miracle. We gotta understand that God is in control of the entire situation. Only God can raise up these bones. Only God had the solution. Only God had the answer. But God wanted Ezekiel to be obedient to his command. God wanted Ezekiel merely to be obedient. And you have to admire him, man. I could see Ezekiel like as he takes a deep breath, right? And then he begins, I mean, he may have said something like, Ahem. excuse me. My dear bones, I'm so happy to see so many of you out and about today. It's very nice of you to show up and lay here, you know. Um, I, I don't know. And, and, and as I stand here before you, I'm so thankful that I feel a whole lot better than, than all of you look. You know, I don't know. Like, I, he, I don't know what I would say. I don't know what, I mean, that's probably what's going through Ezekiel's mind. And, and we know that this isn't what he said because fortunately God had actually given him the words that he was supposed to say. The question is still raised though, how could Ezekiel expect something great to happen when it seemed that there was no life in sight? When everything around him was dead. The only hope of anything happening in that valley of dry bones is in 37.3. Like I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. The words you alone know held the key for something great to happen. Ezekiel knew that this wasn't his miracle. He knew he couldn't put these bones back together. He knew that wasn't what he was supposed to do. But he did know that only God 
knows, and only God could do something about it. Ezekiel knew that God could do something for these bones. And when God spoke to him, he raised his voice with urgency, with urgency, knowing that God had spoken and God could do the impossible. So Ezekiel was like, you know what? This is something that I have to do now. Ezekiel knew these bones didn't need a lecture. They needed life. He knew these bones didn't need a sermon. They needed life. He knew that uh, his opinion of this situation probably wasn't going to help matters. They needed life. And we know that there is life in the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is different than any other book. The word of God presents Jesus Christ as the one who is alive. You ever wonder why John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God? It's because that word is a living word. That is a representation of Jesus. He is a living God. Jesus says in John 6, 63, the spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. The words Jesus speaks are full of spirit and life. There's a life in his word. When God's word is read, life begins to manifest itself. Jesus spoke to Lazarus, right? Lazarus, come forth. What did the dead guy in the tomb do? He walked out because Jesus' words have life. Life was manifested. Jesus spoke, little girl, arise. What did she do? She rose up. And then Jesus said, one of my favorite things, someone make her lunch, right? That was one of my favorite parts of that whole story. It's like, I just brought her back from the dead. She's probably pretty hungry. It's exhausting. If the God of the impossible is gonna raise up those dry bones, they have to be given the word of God. God had Ezekiel to stand as a preacher and proclaim the word over them. Let me, let me give you something to think about because these are some of the things I think about as I'm preparing and that sort of thing. Did you know that when God told Ezekiel to speak to those bones, God never promised that Ezekiel was gonna get a response? Never promised it. He merely said, go do this. He didn't say all these bones are gonna come together. He didn't say you're gonna make zombies today, man. He, like, he didn't say anything like that. He said, hey, go do this. And Ezekiel was obedient. The only thing that Ezekiel knew was that if he proclaimed the words, hear the word of the Lord, God was gonna do something. And he trusted in that. And as he trusted in that, Ezekiel moved with a distinct urgency. Ezekiel moved with a distinct urgency. So Ezekiel did exactly as God said, right? And he moved with an urgency and, and a pace that was probably motivated out of a little bit of fear and, and definitely obedience, but he did what God asked him to do. In verse seven and eight, we see that it says, so I prophesied, and as I was commanded, as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and we just see these bones start getting but put back together and flesh appearing out of nowhere, right? It's like the opposite of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, for those of you Indiana Jones fans, right? Where everybody melts at the end, everybody's coming back to life. And that's what's had, they're all coming, like things are just appearing on them. And we gotta remember, we have to remember that this wasn't Ezekiel's miracle, it was God's. Ezekiel had the breath of life that God gave him, the words that God gave him. And if there's one thing this world, one thing this world needs is a person who has real life in them. Church, we've talked about the, the, just the need for authenticity in the church. We've talked about the need for people who call Jesus their savior to simply be authentic with who they are, to be real about their struggles, to be real about their triumphs, to be able to, to share those things with people or to just be able to sit and cry with somebody. Church, we have to be authentic because we have life. If you call Jesus your savior, you have life. You have the spirit of God living inside of you. 
If a person is going to have life, they have to have breath. They have to have rebirth. And all of that comes from the Spirit of God. All these bones needed was someone to speak the truth into them, speak the truth over them. It's a constant reminder to us that only God has the power to save people, but we must be willing to be used. Only God has the power to save people, but we as the church, as people who have that life, must be willing to be used. We must be willing to step into Ezekiel's shoes. This wasn't Ezekiel's miracle. It was his obedience to God. It was God who performed the miracle. This, the reason this story is so famous is because this is still an accurate depiction of our world. That we have friends, we have loved ones, we have coworkers, neighbors, people in our lives who are dry bones. We have to put it ourselves into the mindset of Ezekiel here. We have to recognize that these are, we have dry bones living next to us. We have dry bones across the table from us at Thanksgiving. We have dry bones at our kids' practices on a weekly basis. We have dry bones in the cubicle sitting next to us. We have to recognize that we are literally in a valley of dry bones. And the only thing, the only thing that is going to penetrate those dry bones and give them life is the spirit of the Lord. That's it. But we have to be willing to be that instrument. We have to be willing to step into Ezekiel's shoes and be terrified and sometimes not know what to say, but recognize that regardless of what comes out of our mouth, God is there with us step for step. It's our obedience to him is the drum that we need to continue to beat. We push Oikos here. We're actually gonna do a series coming up in two weeks. It's called Oikos Stories. And we get the opportunity to, where we're, uh, Kyle is currently interviewing some people um, who came to faith through their oikos. And so we're going to hear some stories of people in our congregation. We're also going to hear some stories uh, from the Word of God about people who came to faith because of oikos. For those of you who are new with us, oikos is simply this. It's that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed 8 to 15 people in your life, so every single one of us, to make an impact for the kingdom of God. That means you don't have to go onto a street corner. You don't have to go door to door handing out tracts or anything like that. You already have people in your life who are dry bones, who need to hear the spirit of God, who need to hear his truth proclaimed. And it's, it's one of the reasons that we want to do small groups, that we're going to do small groups and pushing so hard towards that in the fall. If you're, if you're one of those people who's like on the fence about small groups, you're like, ah, I don't know if it's for me or whatever. Man, jump in for a season. Try it because the whole intention behind small groups is to allow that to also be not only a discipleship tool, but also to be a front door for our church. Because on Sunday morning, we walk in, people walk in, we do a great job at, at greeting. Our greeters are, are awesome. We got hosts, we got mugs. If you return, if you're a first time visitor and you return your Connect card, it's a plug for you first time visitors, you can get a free mug today. Um, but we do a great job and then we follow up with them. We do all those things on a Sunday morning. That's great. That means that we've captured our audience's attention, people's attention who want to know about the things of Jesus for about mm, an hour and 15 minutes today. It looks like it's gonna be an hour 20, an hour and 20 minutes for one seventh of the week. Did it church, man, we could wash our hands. We did so good. So good. No, we want to be able to, to invite people in on a regular basis. And the world in which we live now, the culture in which we live now is a culture simply stated that doesn't trust the church. And a lot of it's not our fault. I'm not putting blame anywhere. It's just where we're at. And so when I've had people ask me, well, why, why are we pushing so hard on people being able to, to meet in homes? Why are, we, why are we gonna do that? It's because people are scared to walk through our doors on a Sunday morning. You know maybe where they won't be scared? Is if you go over to your neighbor's house and say, hey, wanna grab dinner with me and a couple of my friends at my house tomorrow night? 
We want that to be a front door for us to be able to speak truth into dry bones, for us to love them and encourage them. And you say, look, I know you're dead. You don't need me preaching at you. You don't need me to be assuming things about me, about you. All you need me to do is love you well and tell you what the word of God says. That's what we need to do, church. That's why we're pushing into small groups, church. Because the world doesn't trust us anymore. The world doesn't trust the physical location of the church anymore. And so we want to be able to invite our people who are in our lives, our oikos is in our lives, into our homes and just love them and tell them what God's done in your life and then tell them what he did in scripture. And then hopefully that they would accept that call into their lives and the word of God would just begin, the spirit of God would just begin to put those broken, brittle, dried up bones back together And as they continue to push into the things of God, that the tendons and the muscles and the flesh and the organs and all of those things would just be manifest in their life. And then those bones again would have purpose. And they would know that their responsibility then is to be able to talk to more dry bones and tell more people that, hey, I have the greatest information that has ever been spoken to anybody. Let me tell you about it, and let me tell you how it changed my life. Uh, when, when right, a year before Sarah and I left, and I'll end with this, a year before Sarah and I left um, from Apple Valley to come here, we had a, uh, we had a couple join our group, and uh, that couple was not in a good place. Actually, at first, it was just the wife joined our group, and... Uh, she came because she was a waitress at a diner, and we had a regular at our church coming or going to her diner. And he, she was always his waitress, and he would just constantly say, hey, we'd love to see a church, love to see a church, blah, blah, blah. She ended up coming, right, one weekend. And she came one weekend. And on that weekend, I connected with her, Sarah connected with her, and we invited them into our small group. We said, hey, we got a small group on Sunday night. We'd love for you and her two daughters uh, to come to our small group. And so they did, she did. She showed up, no husband around. She showed up, she kept coming, she kept coming. Didn't know where we were with faith. We just kind of said, hey, you're welcome here. And she kept showing up. So we weren't gonna push too hard into anything. And actually when we left, um, her husband had started coming to small group, which is great. He's a little bit louder. And so we found out more about their story. He was actually, they weren't married. Um, he was actually uh, in prison for a couple of years, one for drug use. He had some grand theft auto charges in his life and that sort of thing. And um, we actually ended up uh, just last week or two weeks ago, actually, we went and saw them and uh, found out that on Easter, the two of them had been baptized. And then uh, beyond that, a guy with numerous grand theft auto, I don't know if they're felon charges, whatever, he was convicted of them. Um, he's working at a car dealership, making the most money he's ever made in his life. It's hilarious. He's like, I shouldn't be allowed to work here. And the next thing he said to me, he just struck me. He said, but God has been so good to us over the last two years. When I met this guy, he was a pile of dry bones, a pile of dry bones. And for him to speak those words that God has been so good to us, he had life. He had breath. He had the spirit of the Lord living in and among him. And he was doing his best to now return to the favor to other dry bones that are in his life. Church, that's our responsibility. That's what Ezekiel saw. And yeah, it was a metaphor for Israel, but how applicable to our lives. That the only thing that can bring life is the truth and the spirit of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, I'm so thankful for these stories, for your word, as ridiculous as some of them may be. God, for us to be able to pull meaning from them, like this, meaning that's applicable thousands and thousands of years later. The Lord, it's often heartbreaking as well that the state of the world hasn't changed. 
that were still broken and beat up and lost and just dead, God. Lord, I pray that you would give us a spirit of boldness as a church. God, I pray that as we see dry bones, as we see people around us who simply need you, who simply need your word, God, I pray that we would be bold in that proclamation, that we recognize we don't have to have the right words, we just have to be obedient to you and let you work, let you do what you do, let you do what you do best, which was reconcile us to you forever. And so, Father, if there's people in here this morning who haven't yet said yes to that, this is a pretty tough reminder of, of, of all of humanity's spiritual state. But God, as we do at the end of every service, I'm just going to pray the ABCs. And if you're new with us and you don't know what that is, or um, if you've never made a commitment to God, that's really what it is that we're doing. And so with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, you can just pray along with me in the, in the silence of your own heart. That God, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Romans is very clear about that. The wages of sin is death. That I am dead because of the fact that I sin. That I sin, God. That all of us sin on a regular basis. So I admit that. But God, regardless of of my sin, I, I also believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for my behalf. That we would be able to be with you forever. But God, that this wouldn't just be a, essentially a get out of jail free card. God, that we recognize that there is a responsibility that goes along with believing in your son. Believing that he died and rose again, that he conquered death so I could be with you forever. It's not just about the eternity part. Father, it's about doing our best here to be able to speak life into dry bones. And that's where the sea comes in, that sea I would choose to follow you every single day of my life, that I recognize now that I have a responsibility. Now that I am flesh and muscle and tendons, God, that I have a responsibility to make sure that every pile of dry bones that you bring into my life has an opportunity for purpose, has an opportunity for me has an opportunity for real life because of your spirit. Father, we love you. It's in your sense that you Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.